Uh, we should be going live now. All right. So, uh, welcome everybody to the Dank Kingdom podcast. Um, special guest this week is Dank Memer Extraordinaire David Snavria. David, you're in Florida, right? Correct. Yeah, Tampa, Florida. And uh, of course, of course, I'm up in New England. We got Blanky Dave in Ohio and uh, Anthony down in Oklahoma. Welcome everybody. It's good to have you. Good to be on. Tonight, um, uh, Sans Titus, he he wanted a break. So funny story for all the DKCM folks out there. When we first started doing this, like it was all Titus's instigation. He's like, come on, let's do this, let's do this. And he's like, oh, that went so well. We should do a podcast. We should turn into a podcast and do another podcast. And I was like, man, you got those coming out your ears. And so he pushed and pushed and poked and prodded. And now where is he? He needed a night with the wife. So every other mm. week, Titus, Titus is bailing on us. You know what they oh, say about the, the hired hand. Right, right, right. So we'll do the heavy lifting for him while he's gone. Uh, the reason, the reason um, we wanted to have David especially is uh, David and I have talked a lot. Um, I really appreciate David and his wife's journey. Um, we've been friends for a while now and had a lot of really stimulating conversations. But one of the things, and I think you're just for disclosure, I think your background is Church of Christ, right? Is it ICOC or COC? Uh, International Church. Of yeah, Christ, ICOC. ICOC. Yeah. Uh, but but as David's gotten into patristic studies and kingdom Christianity, he's he's been a real um, wellspring of ideas, especially about some patristic concepts. And, and we've had great conversations about atonement models. So we were we were rattling on a while ago and, and I said, we need to get you on and talk about that. So how do we start this conversation? Well, let's let me lay out the typical scenario that even I think is most common evangelical position. And it's it's closely aligned with PSA. And it's the idea that that the blood on the cross was like the blood on the altar. And what I mean by like the blood on the altar, like it's what God saw like substitute like he put the blood over the people's sins and so they were covered by the blood that's our cliched terminology from evangelicalism covered by the blood uh luther literally uses that that context to talk about justification and calls a snow-covered dung like it's poop mm -hmm. underneath but on top you can't tell that because it's covered with snow that's how he views the blood of christ working in the sacrificial way to cover over us and so when God, he doesn't see our iniquities, rather he sees the blood of Christ and, and the debt is paid of his wrath. And so we get to go to heaven under his, under that parlor trick, the Jesus blood parlor trick. I know I'm being dismissive and I, I, I should probably put it in terms that people wouldn't disagree with. So let's, let's be a little more uh, upfront about it. Jesus's blood pays the penalty of my sin so that I can go to heaven. Now, the, the when we start to talk about ransom models and how to modify some of that framework and some of that thinking, where a lot of people run to is what about the sacrificial system? What's God doing with the blood of those bulls and goats that didn't make people perfect? So how do we jump off? Let's Let's leave off Isaiah 53, because we've talked about that in other places. Maybe we'll get around to it. But let's just talk about what do we think that God was actually doing in the sacrificial system? Um, 
maybe let's start with I I like to start with the Passover. Anthony, you want to you want to kick us off there? Cuz Jesus is the Passover, that's the Lord's mm -hmm. Supper. It's during the Passover when he makes his sacrifice. So let's start with Passover typology and then we'll get to broader sacrificial mm -hmm. typology. Well, I'm not sure if 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 I feel enough mastery of this to describe it on the fly um, without being able to think it through like like I can when I write it out. Right. Um, but yeah, essentially the Passover, the Passover the, the, in, in broad strokes, the Passover is not about saving Israel from God. Right. The Passover is about about God rescuing Israel from bondage to Egypt to this to this like um, kind of stereotypically evil um, slave slaver of a ruler, Pharaoh, who who holds God's people in bondage and despises God and essentially uses the bondage he holds Israel in as a way to thumb his nose at God. And God shows himself strong for his people. And the Passover is the ritual through which he finally, you know, breaks them out of jail. Um, it's, it's, it's all tied in with the judgment on the Egyptians that are holding them captive. And then, and then this Passover is essential, essentially the exit the exit ritual straight out of Egypt. They, they merge right from the Passover. They have their shoes on their feet and they, and they walk out of Israel through this. <clears throat> they're, they're spared from the judgment that comes on the Egyptians because the Egyptians have defied the God of Israel and they, by their obedience to the God of Israel, um, um, by, going, by going through this, this, this ritual, they attach themselves to him and to his plan and to his agenda and he leads them out with a strong arm and and so that's that's the original type um of atonement yeah and the thing that i that i always like to point out with the passover and i think it is the dominant type of christ sacrifice like there it you don't get more pregnant of a type than mm -hmm. than paul literally saying keep the feast when he's talking about communion or says mm -hmm. literally christ our passover like you can't get mm -hmm. any more it's like that rock was christ like it's a it's, it's an explicit declaration that the type is supposed to fit in this place yeah. So when we look at that, when I when I when I look at uh, at atonement narratives and I say, OK, well, what is the blood accomplishing? That's the question of of the atonement. Right. Mm -hmm. What is Jesus doing on the cross? And when I ask about what is the blood of that animal doing in Passover in Egypt, it's not changing God's mind about anybody. Mm -hmm. It's identifying the people that he's going to redeem and breaking the back of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is mm -hmm. literally the target of that sacrifice. Yeah. And, and the identification of God's people happened through the blood. They're all tied together in one common identity. And Pharaoh is defeated so that they can get free from their slavery. That's, that's I think, the important um, messages from that Passover, Passover analysis. Then the other, mm -hmm. another really important one uh, would be the scapegoat because, because the day of atonement is obviously significant for Jesus and, and the, how the, the atonement, um, the day of atonement works with the scapegoat where the sins are imputed onto the goat, but then that's not the goat that sacrificed that, uh, that goat actually is put out, which so was Jesus on Golgotha out of the city. Like there's a lot of typology that's happening, but then Jesus dies. So it's a mixed type. 
but all that stuff is um they're kind of novelties like those are those are very unique sacrificial systems but i think where people maybe struggle even more is what's the general narrative around around sacrifice why does why does blood why does god institute a system where blood uh -huh. how forgiveness is found how do you answer that question david which david sanabria sorry we'll call him blanky dave if we mean yeah well all right so I think that the uh, looking at the Passover is certainly the, the, the place to start just to, you know, skip through some of the, the things you, the, the thread that you laid down, uh, you know, you read Exodus, literally God says that the whole point of uh, that the Passover uh, lamb, the blood, the blood there is supposed to identify the people and that God's going to take vengeance on, on Egypt and their gods. So this is the context is warfare and then it serves for a larger purpose, which is the Exodus. And, uh, it's, and there's a really beautiful, um, a really beautiful uh, line when they cross the Red Sea um, and uh, uh, or they're, they're, it's right before they cross the Red Sea, and essentially Moses tells the Israelites, depending on the, which, if you're using the, the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, either God tells Moses or Moses tells the Israelites, like these guys, these God is, uh, you're about to see the, your salvation, and it is all about exiting Egypt and being saved from the enemy, being Pharaoh and the Egyptian warriors, and then you know they cross the Red Sea, and then the Red, uh, the Red Sea actually kills the Egyptian army. When, and I think that's a, a really important type there of of uh, how we're saved through water uh, and blood, um, you know, rep that's represented in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus, how when he did not just only shed blood on the cross, he also right. shed water on the cross. So I think that that's, those are, that's some good typology that's there. Uh, you touched on the atonement, um, the, the day of atonement, and how PSA does not work within that, uh, that um, sacrificial fest of, uh, that, that festival at all. Uh, um, now, with regards to generally speaking, um, the sacrificial system. The yeah, sacrificial let's, let's answer this yeah. question. When God, let's 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 go before the cross. Mm -hmm. When God institutes this system of sacrifice, what is He doing at that altar? Why does He want blood at the altar of meeting place between them and Him? All right. So that's a that's a that's a loaded question because there was a bunch of different types of sacrifices. Uh, that mm -hmm. did all different sorts of things. Some of them were straight up like having a meal with God where, you right. know, like there's, a, there's, all right, this portion, you know, they butcher an animal, then they put a certain portion, this portion's for God, this portion's for the priest, and this portion's for the person who, who's making the sacrifice, and we're going to all just eat together. Um, and then there were things more like sin offerings that were, uh, that were for uh, atoning uh, for the sins of, uh, of all of Israel. Although it is kind of interesting that it was for slightly lesser sins because you couldn't, right. you couldn't just, I mean, there's a whole, like, there was a law that dictated the death penalty. Um, so you couldn't just commit sins and then like, well, let's just, you know, let's just kill an animal and, and, and don't kill me. That, that really wasn't, that's not even how it works. Now, when it comes to the, the, uh, the, the, the amount of blood that there was uh, used on the altar, it wasn't just on the altar, it was all over the place. And, in, and it was often used. And in the, if you read Hebrews uh, and you read chapter nine, it talks about how uh, they, that in order to establish a covenant, there was, uh, there was, it was necessary for blood to be poured. And he, he, he brings that up in Hebrews nine, essentially to say that, uh, that this is part of Jesus establishing the new covenant, uh, a new covenant, that these new covenants needed 
they need to be established by blood. He doesn't necessarily explain why, but he just, he just makes that point. And, and he's essentially stating that Jesus establishes a new covenant and the old one is obsolete. Um, so that, that's one aspect. Then he transitions in like verse 21 or verse 20 and starts talking about how uh, blood was used to, uh, was sprinkled on everything, on the tabernacle, on the books, on... Um, on the people uh, at the giving of the law. The people at the giving of the law, but it was it was used mm -hmm. to cleanse. I'm going to actually just read uh, read the. So it's really short. Hebrews nine. Sorry about that. Hebrews nine, verse twenty one. He goes, and in the same way he sprinkled blood. Uh, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no, and this is the kicker here, no remission. Now, if most modern translations use the word forgiveness there. I would argue that that's them inserting an interpretation in their translation. Uh, but the word, the word that's underlining uh, the Greek word, that's actually a little bit more vague. I'm going to use the word remission for now. So without blood, there is no remission. And then he continues. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed uh, with these, with these, the blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And then he kind of goes on from there. And so the point is that the whole purpose of the blood is, is cleansing, it's purification. And um, uh, if you, I would strong, strongly recommend anyone who's listening to this to go back and actually read through the book of Hebrews and see how dominant uh, purification and sanctification is. The very first, one of the first verses in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3, mm -hmm. he goes, when he made, when he, referring to Jesus, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the Most High. So in, in mm -hmm. the, in the, from the perspective of the, of the author of Hebrews, the blood is all about sanctification. It's about purification. Obviously, Martin Luther wasn't reading the book of Hebrews because it wasn't just about covering dung and leaving the dung there. It was about purifying and making clean. And mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but feces is not clean. So I, I think that that's probably one of the major things. And, and one of the things that really trips people up is how that the, the word... Um, the, there's a coined Greek word that it, it's it's um, aphesis, something to that effect, aphesis, and uh, that's the word that in the King James, the World English Bible, some of the old New King James uses. They translate it as remission, which is somewhat vague, um, maybe to modern readers. Uh, the new translations, like the NASB, the ESV, straight up just use uh, forgiveness. Uh, use forgiveness. The ESV goes as far as to say forgiveness of sins. So. If you read the ESV, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Interestingly, there's a different Koine Greek word, which is uh, more tight, tight, uh, tightly related to forgiveness, the way we think about forgiving someone's debt or forgiving someone who sinned against you. Um, that's, a, 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 that's, a, that's a really, that's a broader discussion, something that I've been studying out recently uh, to kind of piece these things together. But that's all if you look at the Old Testament and you're wondering what's going on with all this blood all over the place, the point was cleansing, it was purifying. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Jesus's blood does. It purifies us. It cleanses us, which ties us into, you know, the conversation on the Eucharist, the importance of, of, uh, of Jesus's blood and the communion, that this is a continual process of purifying us. And, 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 it, and Jesus's blood is what purifies us. Uh, it has ties in there with, with, um, with baptism where Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, Peter in Acts 2 says, repent, uh, and, and, uh, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Uh, you, you look at what, uh, when Paul is telling his conversion story, he says that Ananias told him, 
you know, what are you waiting for? Wash away your sins. Wash away your sins. The context isn't you're getting baptized for God to forgive you. You're getting baptized to be washed for your sins Mm -hmm. to be be washed. And then that ties us in better to the question. And I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place, but these things, they kind of, they, they tie into into each other. Yeah. Yeah, They they literally bleed into one. Uh, The last thing I'll say is that it, this, for me, it comes back to what are we saved from? And you look at uh, Matthew uh, in the book of Matthew, when the angel uh, tells Joseph who Jesus is, it says he's going to save the people from their sin, not he's going to save the people from the punishment of their sin. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that it's a very small pivot. It's a it's a it's a small it's a it's a different emphasis, but it's it's it makes a world of difference. I think it's the well, and, and of Mary. And and oh. and just to, just to clarify, because I know this is going to be the next question. Um, it always is. We're not saying that Jesus doesn't save us from the punishment of our sins. If your sins are done away with, the punishment is too. But mm-hmm. but but it, it's it's a difference in like what is what you know what order things happen in. The punishment well, very, is done away with because the sin is cleansed. Right. It's very it's very Sermon on the Mount indicative right like if you don't hate people you're not going to commit murder if you don't lust you're not going to commit mm-hmm. adultery if you take the root of sin out of, of transgression out of a person there's no there's no reason for the consequence of those things there's no wages for those sins to be left i i think let me let me go back and sum up because you 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 blazed over some important trail right there david the the so so let me let's just go back to to basic frameworks around old testament old testament sacrifice here's some here let me let me lay out some some premises and and you all tell me if we're all on the same page um the sacrificial system as it pertained to sin especially sin sacrifice was only a part of the sacrificial system right so there's sacrifices of thanksgiving there's sacrifices of harvest there's sacrifices of tithe there's all kinds of ways that people are sacrificing and 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 in essence those sacrifices all mean the giving up of something important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to to be in a place to mean it to have some cost of entry to be with god around whatever he's doing whether that's forgiveness of sin or or providing for his people or whatever the case may be whatever the sacrifice is about it's about my cost to be in this place with you okay so that's a part of sacrifice the other thing is that there's no there's no model in the old testament sacrificial system for me to like premeditatedly go out and do a sin and then pay a sacrifice to make up for it like it's not a there is not a quid pro quo in the old testament sacrificial system it's not this like okay i want to kill my neighbor how much is that going to cost me okay now i'm going to go kill him and i'll i'll pay these three bulls and god isn't mad at me anymore Mm -hmm. it's not that kind of buying out in fact the sins that are forgiven in sacrifice are are accidental or unintentional sins yeah okay so that's an important thing um the Passover, the Passover, and the scapegoat uh, are are novel and pivotally important with the sacrifice of Christ. And then we would, I would also add that we should we should talk when we talk about the Old Testament sacrificial system that 
that the Hebrew system is not um, pagan plus. It, it's not like the pagan systems, but to the right God. Yeah. And, and that's an important distinction to make because why do the pagans sacrifice? Because there's the, the, and not just like, I think when we think pagan, oftentimes, I don't know about you guys, but I do so much reading in the first few centuries um, that I always think of the Greco-Roman world, but all the way back to Baal, all the way mm-hmm. back to Molech, all the way back to the, these ancient gods, all of them require sacrifices. And what is the differentiation between the pagan sacrificial model and the Hebrew sacrificial model? What's happening there? Um, I, I would say that the pagan system is designed for appeasement or favor. Like mm-hmm. you're giving something to this God to either keep from being punished by him or to gain his favor. And that, mm-hmm. that that's not what's at the heart of, of the Hebrew sacrificial system. At the heart of the Hebrew sacrificial system is something more about meeting and commonality. It's mm-hmm. more about recognition of, of, of place and price. And I, I, so when Jesus, when God says to the prophets that um, uh, away with your sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, I, I don't want anything to do with it. And he tells them through the prophets I didn't, am I hungry that you should feed me? Am I thirsty that you should give me drink? These things aren't for me. That's what God's saying Mm -hmm. through, like he has pleasure in them, but they're not for him. So what Mm -hmm. are they for? And that's a, that's a pivotal question that I think we have to get to at the heart of what the old Testament sacrificial system is. What is the blood for and why does it have the cleansing effect that it has? And I don't know. I haven't put together a comprehensive answer to that question. I actually preached on this, I don't know, a year or two ago, questions about the blood at Followers of the Way. And it was kind of unsatisfying because I raised more questions than I answered. There's something at the heart of this system that I don't quite, I haven't quite put together. I'm thoroughly dissatisfied with the blood drinking God of the PSA model. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I haven't quite put together all the pieces yet in my own mind, but I think it's something about cost. It's something about like the, the lamb is the, is the transaction point. It's how God and I agree together about this. It's how we get on the same page. It's how we come to the same place. It's like the, it's almost like the, the altar itself is the point of meeting. So if you look at that framework, and I I feel like I'm rambling on now, I want to give you guys a chance to talk. But if we look at that framework of the place of meeting is at the altar, it's it's like the place of the cross, right? Because cross is about convergence. It's about it's about intersection. And the altars of the Old Testament are that place of intersection. It's where sin and righteousness comes together. It's where God and his people come together. It's where the priests and the people come together. It's all these intersections that we're used to thinking foundationally about at the cross are happening at the altar in the Old Testament system. It's the place of meeting. It's the place of coming together. Now, it's interesting. We were we were just briefly talking about propitiation before we went live. And and in the Septuagint, the, the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory, that mm-hmm. place between the cherubim at the ark is called the propitiation in Greek. The same word propitiation in the New Testament is what the mercy seat is called in, in the Old Testament. And, and so for me, you know, how, how Gentile Christian I am, 
uh, I transport that idea of mercy seat into the New Testament context of propitiation. So anyhow, wh what do you guys think about all that? Well, can I can I just interject something here? Because I'm uh, one point that I think maybe fits in here as well as it does anywhere, which is like, and this is something I'm still studying out, uh, but it seems to me it's profoundly significant for the distinction between the pagan sacrificial systems and the way that God established sacrifice to work. Um, and, and, that's, and, and that's found in the, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham's called to sacrifice Isaac. I mean, this, this essentially, this is a pagan setup. Um, a, a pay, like the pagan sacrificial model is in full, on full display when God asks, asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, like that is what pagan gods do. Right. Um, that's something that Abraham, you know, probably knowing God as what Yahweh, as well as he did at that point, he was a little surprised at, but it was something that would have been part of Abraham's experience. So he was willing to consider the possibility that Yahweh wants him to sacrifice his son. Give me the most precious thing you have. That's how you get a chance to survive in my on my land in my presence you know it's mm -hmm. um so so and so what happens when abraham gets to that point of sacrificing and what abraham says on the way up the mountain god will yeah, god will provide a lamb um that to me is the is is the key to an incredibly important distinction that actually runs through the entire old old testament sacrificial system and that is that God, whereas the pagans had to give up something valuable of their own to appease the God, <clears throat> God, in Abraham's case, takes a ram that wasn't Abraham's. It was, you know, by all appearances, a wild ram. God provides it. It's miraculously right there when Abraham needs it. It doesn't come from him at all. It's the opposite of what Abraham thought was going to happen. So, this sacrifice is making is, is making a connection, like you said, a, a, a relational connection between Abraham and God, but it's God providing the value into the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, Abraham just brings himself to that sacrifice. He doesn't sacrifice anything. And but I and, feel like we're still not answering the question of why is the sacrifice necessary? I, I don't I don't think we are, but I think this I think under understanding who it is that's giving the sacrifice maybe helps lay a foundation for that. So if you look through the rest of the Old Testament, just to sum up very quickly, you see God first laying claim to everything. He's saying, essentially, you're renters. You're on, you're on my land. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Like you said, he says, I I'm not hungry. I don't need anything. This is all mine to start with. I let you have it. You guys didn't earn this. I'm letting you essentially lease my land i'm letting you lease my cattle and i'm taking shares of them and out of those shares your atonement is made mm -hmm. in other words it's out of god's portion that the sacrifices come um, over and over the firstborn god said god lays claim to and then says you need to sacrifice the firstborn to me or or redeem it but the firstborn is mine because i purchased the firstborn you know, and, that's the one instance, there's only a few instances of the word ransom in the Old Testament, and that's one. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, you're ransoming that firstborn with something else. 
and and so God over and over lays claim to something, and, and I don't have this fully worked out, but it's a very, a very clear pattern. He lays claim to something that was always his. He's not taking it from the people. And then he uses that as the sacrifice, just like he did with Abraham. He, God brings the value. God makes the sacrifice. And that merges perfectly into what happens with Christ. He's preparing them for that. You know, with the Abrahamic story, he's preparing them for exactly what happens with Christ. It's God providing the lamb all the way along. He's turning it on its head. Rather than humans giving God something that God needs, God keeps on over and over providing humans with the value that they need, the missing link to connect them to him. Well, and I think that that, that a part of what my, my uh, solution to the dilemma of, of why the blood is there in the first place and what its function is, is that I think, and it kind of piggybacks a little bit off of that, Anthony, that, that there's something that God's trying to teach us in the blood, in the sacrifice in general. And I think there's, there's a lot to be had from the meeting place, like, like the relig religious family barbecue, you know, the place where we're coming together around this. But there's something else about like the horrible cost, like the ugliness, like if you, the interesting thing to me, especially about the Passover is that in the, in the, in the post pass post Exodus Passover ordinance, that's a mouthful. Um, you're supposed to separate that lamb and bring it close to your family. Mm -hmm. And so it's this very like kindred experience. You, you take the best of, of, of all of it and you identify with it. You bring it to your home. It's not out in the field anymore. It's here close. It's like, mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, one of the family. And that that's that one of the family is is sacrificed. The blood is spilt and collected. The hyssop, the whole thing. And then you everyone has to kind of realize. I mean, I don't you know, agrarian or not. You put a little lamb, especially the perfect, beautiful one with your six-year-old girl, and she's going to be best friends with it in three hours. And you're going to kill that thing in a couple days. And so like that whole like trauma of identification equals cost. Like it's costing something for us to get free. It's costing something for us to be delivered. And I think that's the grand sweeping narrative around these blood issues is that God's trying to teach us okay, you have these problems that you're wrecking the world with, the, the, mm -hmm. the groaned creation, the fall itself, the brokenness in humanity, all the things that are wrong with you have a really high price to set them in order. And I think that may mm -hmm. be a critical issue of what's being communicated through these blood narratives. Yeah, well, I mean, mm -hmm. Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard for your, uh, he's talk, uh, Paul's talking to um, church leaders. He goes, be on guard uh, for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So it goes back to the idea of it, it, there was a cost. I had to, I, I purchased the church and it cost me something. And, and, and there could be a foreshadowing of that um, for what you described about, you know, you, 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 you bring in this animal becomes, um, you know, becomes um, appreciated, you know, the, the family becomes tied to it. Um, for it being cute and, and nice and all that, and then and then it, it needs to be sacrificed. Uh, that that you feel that loss, that there was a uh, that there was a cost associated to, um, 
to that that festival and maybe i think it was foreshadowing the cost that uh that god was going to be paying uh, mm -hmm. to purchase his church mm -hmm. um it's kind of and this is an interesting question about like why did god have a sacrificial system at all why there was why blood i think the i think the, i think the answer to why was there blood being sprinkled on stuff and, and things like that is that's clear, cleared up in the sense that the the answer to that is purification now the question is why does blood i think the follow-up question is why does blood purify anything in the first place for me uh and I, I don't know if matthew if you if you gave a message on this at some point and i heard it or i heard it or i, or I don't know where but i started to connect the dots and the idea that um uh for me when when for me the purification and it's not only purification but the sacrifices were meant to bring uh god, god with his people together it was a restoration in my view it's a restoration of eden you see that in some of the the, uh, the imagery that's used in the tabernacle and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, you, uh, but but since you, that all fell apart when human uh, humanity sinned, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they got put out and it, it all falls apart. So I think the the blood um, is it, is purifying in the sense that when Adam and Eve sin, the consequences of sin uh, is is death, and so. Uh, one of the things that we learn uh, from Noah and the law of Moses, and then it gets, uh, is that humans are not supposed to be eating the blood of animals. And I think only in the, in the law of Moses does it ever, like, I don't know if it's Deuteronomy or, or Leviticus, but it, it explains why. And it says, because the, the life of the animal is in the blood. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're not supposed to eat it. But that might also be why they need to be cleansing everything with it, because that blood, that blood mm -hmm. has life in it. And so it, it's purifying the death that's closely mm -hmm. associated with sin. And you, mm -hmm. and then you bring that forward to the new Testament, you got the blood of Christ who Jesus is the giver of life. His, he is, his, his, he is, he is the life. He is eternal. His blood gives eternal life. So when you, when you have Jesus's blood and you start cleaning with that thing out, it totally drives out sin. It totally drives out death. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but that's, that's the best way I've been able to understand why is blood being used to purify in the first place? Uh, why was animal blood being used in the before? And why is Jesus's blood capable of, of, uh, of sanctifying us? Uh, my answer would be because in his blood is eternal life. So it cleans the death. And that, that makes me think of what Paul said in Romans, where it's like, who's going to save me from this body of death? Something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need communion. You know, that's why we need right. the Eucharist. I hate, you know, I hate to bring it back to that, but I don't, you know, I don't, it just leads us there. No apologies <laughs> for bringing up the Eucharist when we're talking about blood. I, I think that's an interesting concept because I, you know, when, when, when you're talking about the life of the flesh is in the blood, that's, a, that's a really powerful concept. And I think where we see this play, where I, where, where my mind goes to when I hear that the life of the flesh is in the blood, especially in regards to the prohibition of drinking blood and the pagan use of blood. Like, I think the quintessential pagan version of that is like the Maasai. I don't know if you've ever seen them, those herd, those nomadic herd people in East Africa, uh, Kenya, Somalia, and, and Western Uganda, they'll, um, they're nomadic herders and they'll, they'll take one of their cows who are their their spirit their gods to them i mean they're a god the cow and they'll um they'll shoot it at close range in the jugular and they'll collect blood they don't kill the animal they just collect enough blood and then they'll bind up the wound and they'll drink that blood when they go on a hunt and they believe uh, as many cultures do when they drink those bloods that they're infused with the strength of the bull 
like they take the life of the bull into themselves and something something happens with that there's something in the in the supernatural world that goes along with the spirits that required that in pagan sacrifice and the principles involved with it with with what what god tells the people about life of the flesh being in blood and life and blood having this certain power and it having the power to cleanse. But in the Hebrew context, that that cleansing is always external. It's the implements of the temple. Mm -hmm. It's the altar. It's even the outside of the people, but the cleansing stays on the outside of all these frameworks, mm -hmm. but the blood of Christ and the scandal of uh, the literal scandal of drinking his blood is putting it's it's doing it's putting his life in us the same way the messiah drink the blood of the bull and are infused with its power through those dark forces yeah. we're making the same kind of claims in the new testament it's all done through the church and through the eucharist but that's what jesus is instituting in the lord's supper yeah and that's going to make people uncomfortable well you know what <laughs> Um, it yeah. always has it always but, has since it was first said mm -hmm. but the thing my wife and i were just talking a lot about it today for some reason <laughs> uh that i guess i don't a lot of people i i think focus on this concept of um you know cannibalism you know this idea and i guess i feel like i feel like that view or that way of looking at it is so um so wooden and so literal I, I feel like it's missing um i think it's missing something by focusing on that part of it it's almost as if well that's why i like the ice cube meme that i shared so much this idea of of jesus pouring himself out right um, it's not this, it's not this grotesque because that's what cannibalism is, you know, to, you know, you're you, like the Donner party up in the mountains, you know, and they're freezing it and they're finally reduced to the fat, to the point of eating the people that, you know, that had frozen already. Um, and we're just, we're just horrified and repulsed by that. But what Jesus did is it's something different than that. It's not this, um, it's the beauty of the, of the sacrifice of him saying um, there's no, you know, there's no food. So I'm going to sacrifice myself so that you have food. Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice myself so that you can live without all the attendant grossness of, you know, um, grilling somebody and eating them. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense or not to, to me, that's, that's where I think like I, I feel like the offense is somehow is, is a little misplaced um, because of that, you know, that cannibalism weirdness. I, I think I, I think, yeah. So I think you you the cannibalism stuff is is um, I mean it's it's negating who Jesus is that he is the Word of God and his power and I think you know it's 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 a very uh, it's like willfully simplistic um, or, or naive anyways but what I will say what I what I what I really appreciate about what you just finished saying is that this idea he's like there isn't food I'm going to give you you need life because you're, you're dying I'm going to give you life but we already established the law of Moses established where the life is the life is in the blood 
And so I think that kind of brings us back to what we were saying. And, and I really love that meme that you, that you posted, um, uh, reading through um, Against Heresies, uh, book three. It, there's so much that could be said. But one thing, what, what I will say is that the, the, the real presence of Jesus in the, in the bread and the wine is sort of like, like I would just, what, and it made me, your, your meme made me think of this. It's kind of like a continuation of the incarnation. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Jesus is, because all things were created by Jesus because he is the word of God. And so it, it, it's kind of like he's permeating, um, he's permeating uh, the, uh, he's, he's, the word of God, Jesus, he's, he's sort of, per, he's, he's breaking into creation like again, in, in a way, um, mm-hmm. might not be the, I don't know if that's the right terms, but something to that effect. And that's how we have access to his body and his blood in a way that's not cannibalism, in a way that we're not carnally eating him. But in reality, we are partaking of him. Um, those, are, those are some some thoughts that I had. It, I had the idea today that it, uh, uh, it's almost transubstantiation in reverse. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not that the bread is made into flesh but rather that jesus transmuted his hymns his flesh into bread for us to eat yeah. um and I, I like that that way of um that that he's you know he and it goes then with the transformation of that through his death through the horror of his excruciating um death that somehow he transmutes that into something that gives life and joy and hope and peace and all these things mm-hmm. that are that are the mirror image of what he experienced that it's this it's this complete transmutation um that that i think that the eucharist is a is a is a figure of as well you could call it alchemy <sighs> yeah a union uh, let, let let's let's just look at transubstantiation right at face value since we're here. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with transubstantiation, like the the idea, doesn't some of the some of the hierarchy and institution around transubstantiation bothers me. You know, parading the monstrance through a town and you know in the in in the medieval world, you know slaughtering Anabaptists who won't bow before it like those kinds of things bother me but the idea isn't I just think it's a it's a superstitious it's very Latin right it's a need to put uh, 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 it's a need to put this in terms that I can understand and mm-hmm. and I think that you see very much and when, when you look at the high churches you see very much the difference between the Latin modeled churches and the Greek churches in that in in the Orthodox world it's just a mysterium. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know how it, it just is. We, we know it, mm-hmm. what it is and we know what it does. And other than that, it's like, who can tell? But the Latins have to have a, 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 an explanation. They have to have a formula. And so they apply transubstantiation. Well, see, if it's the blood of Christ, then no matter what your tongue tells you or your mind tells you, your body tells you, it has to be the body as far as like the atoms itself have to turn into the yep. flesh particles of Christ. And I think that that's never, I don't think that was what the original, um, the original ideas around partaking the blood of Christ and the body of Christ were. I don't think that's the original apostolic 
uh, feeling or or the post-apostolic feeling. And in fact, they talk about it. Uh, I think it's Irenaeus that says we recognize two present realities. Mm-hmm. There's a supernatural reality and there's a physical reality. He says these things, they are ble- bread and they are wine and they are the body of Christ and they are the blood of Christ. And so both mm-hmm. are present. And I think, so this is actually really helpful <clears throat> to me because what I try to, when these are new concepts to people, I try to explain that a sacrament is a place where God has taken physical things and crammed supernatural reality into them. And that's very fitting given the incarnation, like that's what Jesus is. And Mm -hmm. so the sacraments of the church are these Jesus moments that the church has. They're these places where physical reality is infused or crammed together with supernatural Mm -hmm. reality. So when we go to the baptismal waters, it's, it's water like in your bathtub or in your river. It's just water, but it's also washing away sin. Both are present realities. Like you can't wash away sin with water, but you can't wash away sin without water. Like both are there in that moment and in that place. And the same is true with the Eucharist. Like you ha- God's crammed these physical things with supernatural reality. Same with marriage. Like he crams that moment of marriage into a spiritual moment where two are made one flesh. Like all these things swirl mm-hmm. in the same genre. They're incarnational. They're the, our own experiences with the incarnation. And they're, they're a part of the creation because we right. are made right. of earth. Yes. And spirit. You know what I mean? Like we were made, mm-hmm. of, we were made of dirt. Right. And then God breathed spirit into us. We are just coming together. You know, we are... And we're made in, in the image of, 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 of our father, of our God, you know, like there's something there's, it's, it's also creational. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a word, but it's, it has to do with creation. And, um, you know, when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about a new creation, you're, you know, or yeah, a new creation. Yeah. Yeah. D- David, I think that's an incredibly powerful idea that, that, that really lies at the heart of this whole discussion when you're talking about s- sacramental ideas is that, because we are spirit and flesh, because we're like the link between the material world and the spiritual world um, in a way that maybe no other creature is. No, um, it, it, yeah, no. We, we because, because we're made up in that very special way, the most real, the, the only experiences that we can actually wholly enter into are experiences that have both a material and spiritual component to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a carnal person like the, that, that the, the language of the scripture all the way through is this idea of carnal or fleshly behavior is behavior that leaves the spirit out. It doesn't feed, it doesn't support, it doesn't nurture the spiritual side of us. Yeah. It's treating ourselves as if we're nothing more than animals, just following our instincts. Yeah. Yeah. And, but when we attempt to be merely spiritual or, or st- strictly spiritual, um, that's that you you create very weird mystical you know experiences but uh, and people that are often just profoundly disordered in really important ways um because they're trying to escape their 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 material nature and so all of these core these things that are the most core to being human marriage um like marriage most of us can see that there it's easier to somehow see how important those two elements are in marriage 
but the Eucharist and, and baptism yep. um, are, are the same way. They're, there's, they're intensely physical. Yep. And at the same time, you know, just, just almost incomprehensible spiritual realities going on at the same time. And those are the places where our whole being is actually engaged and really nowhere else. Yeah. I really like, and you've probably, um, at least some of you have probably heard my, uh, the illustration that the Anglican vicar that really is where I first really started learning about the real presence and understanding it was through conversations with um, a local Anglican priest. And the illustration that I've heard him, that I heard him give again and again is the, is the picture of marriage that you alluded to, Matthew, where, you know, here's a man and a woman and they join hands. The preacher says some words, you know, he pronounces them man and wife. Well, if at that moment, you know, you took a CAT scan or an MRI or a blood test or whatever, there's nothing, nothing happened. But we all understand and agree that there's a, that there's a new spiritual reality. They mm-hmm. become something more. It's not just a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. There's now a, a unit here that wasn't there before. There's a something new. Um, and to me, that has helped me make that has helped me make sense of that dual nature that that overlaid spiritual reality that we see in these in these sacramental things is is something that we all agree that there's something more that is not just you know saying words or is not just a, you know a couple. Um, somebody in in the comments um, asked the question. Um, Said, I'm trying to figure out what some of you believe. So what makes communion communion? You're sitting at home, you're eating bread, you're drinking wine, and you decide to turn it into that, quote, something more. Like who or what determines that it will become more than common food? Because literally it is just food and drink. Can I, can I answer that? Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear thoughts from, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jesus says if any, you want, you ask anything, ask the Father anything, I'll give it to you, you know, in, his, in the name of Jesus. It's not, it's, this is not complicated. None of us have magical powers. We're just, we're just random dudes. I just, when I want to, when, when, when I need our king and I need eternal life because, you know, I'm going through the meat grinder, I ask my father in heaven and he provides. And that's that. It's, I mean, well, maybe that's a little mean, but I, I just, I don't understand the confusion around it. And, and this ties in a little bit to, sacerdotalism where the whole sacerdotal aspect of of you know people typically they'll they'll connect um the real presence with sac or sacramentalism with sacerdotalism and i i don't i don't see the connection at all uh but well i don't know if anyone has any thoughts about that yeah i i think you're right i mean the fact that the church calls it the eucharist is evcaristo it's it's thanksgiving and what the church has always done is they would give thanks for Mm -hmm the the body of christ just like jesus did at the table with the disciples and that that giving of thanks that thanking god in faith for what he's doing in these elements is what makes them like our participation with god through faith is what is what makes the elements sacred instead of common Mm -hmm. so in in the context of the church sorry right 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 yeah in the in the context of the church's sacraments so so that that's why it became known as the eucharist because 
uh, it's not called the bread. It's called the Eucharist. It was bread until we gave thanks for it and thanked God for his sacrifice in Christ. And then it becomes the Eucharist. It's or as has been, has been posted many, many times within the last couple of hours, what Paul says, this, this bread that we bless, is it not yeah. the sharing in right. the blood? This bread, this cup that we bless, is it not the sharing in the blood? Yeah, it's the koinonia, it's the partnership with the blood. The other, the other thing that I would say that's, and I'm, I'm getting a jump on you here, Dave, for the midwinter. You know, when we get, when we get around to the Christ Mass, um, what, what I often ha hear people say is, don't you think it's important to have a time in the year to recognize the incarnation and the gift of God to the world? Mm. And I always answer. Yes, it absolutely is. And I do it every single Sunday with the church. The most <laughs> incarnational thing that you can do right. is to recognize Christ in the elements of the Eucharist. That is my weekly celebration, at least weekly celebration of the incarnation of Christ. It's, it's the most incarnational thing that we do. Another, another thing, and I, and I really, really liked that, um, liked that approach. So, you know, ho, ho, that was a good start. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, that's a point I'm not going to argue about. Setting points on the board early. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, but I really liked that, um, the, that the, the Eucharist being basically the entire gospel all rolled up into one. It's the it's the incarnation. It's the the resurrection. The, the resurrection. It's the crucifixion. It's everything that Jesus did all somehow smashed into this common thing. And that's and the that's, real memorial value of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's that, the real and, memorial. And um, yeah, because contrary to popular belief, we do think it's valuable to, to have a memorial of Christ. It's just that we think it's more than just uh, the equivalent of tying a string around your finger two times a year to recall something. Um, right. One of the things, just, just a question. So is communion something like you mentioned, David, the... Um, that, you know, when you feel, you know, I, here I am, I need the 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 living bread i need that connection with god you know so i ask god i invoke the presence of the holy spirit you know to make these elements for me the body and blood that um so is that something that i i, I realize normatively it's part of community but is it essential that it's always the case or Matthew or, you know, uh, whoever, you know, you get up one morning and you just feel that need. So you go out to the kitchen and you get some unleavened crackers and some alcoholic wine and you um, just yourself invoke the presence of God. Or is that not is that not really what's supposed to happen? I think it's I think it's story time. So one time uh, my wife and I, we, we got we got um, we, we were part of a, 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 a relatively large church um a large network of churches and for reasons we left and so now we've been on our own for a little bit having communion with another couple uh but before we started having communion with that couple my wife and i were just having communion at home um and uh so that shares we were, where, where we're at anyways so i i one morning i woke up and i realized that we didn't have wine so i, I went to the local grocery store and i, I went to go buy buy wine and uh, the lady was like, you can't, you can't buy this. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
And then she's like, she's like, you, mm-hmm. can't, you can't buy this because it's against, it's against the law. You can't buy alcohol uh, on Sunday, on Sunday mornings before 11 a.m. And I'm like, but it's for a communion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, my point being, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, I've, I, one time I was speaking with uh, David Brousseau, um, and he, he was pretty firm on like, no, no, you can't have communion on your own. Uh, and I, I really don't understand why. I always I thought about like what what did what did Paul do while he was in Athens? Because uh, he was it seemed like he was there by himself. Um, so I don't really know. And I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I'm not. I, I do think that it's certainly intended to be in the context of of of, a, of an assembly of a church of Christ. Um, and I don't think it's something that should be all willy nilly. And I don't want to promote uh, you know lone wolves or anything like that. Uh, that's not that's not my gig. Although. Look, I don't know in the circumstance that, that we're in right now. I mean, my wife and I are, are having communion because I, I don't know, because I need it. And, and, you know, God decides whether or not I'm, I'm receiving it or not. Uh, I, I think that it. I think that in it, I think that we're touching on the right um, shape of it, that it's designed to be a function of community. Like that's what the intention mm-hmm. is. But I think that's true of baptism too. Like these, these things are supposed to be the the possession of the church proper. Like the sacraments are of the church. They're the things that she possesses from him, but, but we're all parts of that. And so, so while I, there's the, the ideal is that these things are functioning in, in flourishing communities. What, what do we do when we're outside of that flourishing community and I think there's plenty of other reasons where you can look and see God operating outside of the mold in order for, for the, for the good of the people. So like, you know, even, even, even if you look at baptism, how it's laid out in acts, you know, you have Cornelius receiving the baptism of the Holy ghost before he's baptized in water. You have all the people being baptized in water, then receiving the Holy ghost. Then you have the Samaritans who are baptized in water, and they have to have hands laid on them before. So there's like all this innovation on the theme. You have, you have, you know, the, the translation that Philip has so that he can baptize the eunuch. Like there's a lot happening within the framework of baptism, but the, the essential function of baptism is the same in all those cases. And I think that's true of the Eucharist too. What, what we have in Acts chapter two is that they're breaking bread from house to house. That's a pretty small intimate affair communion. I don't think that you had to have the whole church together, but I also think that, that at its best, what communion is supposed to be doing is the common union. It's Mm -hmm. what ties us all together. It's what, so, so this is another important, aspect to the sacrifice of of what's happening here is that a part of what the sacrificial system did especially when you think about passover is it made the people one people it identified them as god's people and that's why mm-hmm. again in the post exodus uh, legislation of that the, the, the keeping of the Passover was required to be in Israel. It was so important that there was a do-over day if you happen to be unclean on the Passover because you had to partake of the Passover in order to be a part of Israel. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that carries over, that there's this ubiquity to the Eucharist, that it's, it is required for all of us. And, and it's so at its best, it's tying us together in identifiable ways. And it means... That when I'm partaking of communion with with my people here, I'm being mixed with them the same way that I'm being mixed with God. That all of us are being thrown in a pot together 
or or a bread, you know, the the ground wheat, a kernel of wheat dies and it's mixed together with other. You can't mm -hmm. separate the wheat anymore. You can't separate the grapes anymore in the wine. Like we're all mixed together. It's the common union. We're all mm -hmm. put together in this. So that essential function is a big part of what God's doing in the Eucharist. But what's the innovation that's allowed, I think, is, it, 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 you know, that there's variables that apply with all that. I think if we're being careful not to be not to exercise our autonomy and independence through the Eucharist, that would be that would be antithetical. But if we're alone and what else are we going to do, then I, I, I don't see God being upset at anybody over that. You I could say perhaps the, the Eucharist was made for man and not man for the Eucharist. Right. So. Um, if I could kind of just sum it up and you can tell me if, if I if you feel it's, it's an accurate statement. Um, so you would say then that um, community is essential to the, the practice of the Eucharist, but it's not necessary for the practice of the Eucharist. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a fair way to sum it up. Um, so then and this is kind of a this is kind of maybe a little bit of a silly question, but you know, my brain goes all these different directions. So I'm just curious. That's so why we keep David, you around, you know, Dave. Pardon me? That's why we keep you around. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you told your story, you know, you go down to the, to the store, you couldn't buy wine, you know, and the idea, as I understand, um, I tend to be fairly um, like uh, you can, you can faint Matthew, but you know, I've used, I've used leavened bread, you know, fairly frequently in, in um, practice of communion myself. Well, we, so, we got to um, get that set in order, brother. Right. <laughs> no sin and, in and your I communion. It, pardon me? No sin in your communion. Yeah. And, and I understand the value of, of the unleavened and so forth, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious about it. So let's suppose you've got grape juice in the house, but you don't have fermented wine. So then that's not a great symbol. Um, so, would you what what would you do in that case um just wait until you have it or would it be permissible to take let's say cough syrup which has alcoholic content put a little bit of cough syrup in it so now it has alcohol and now you can do it i'm 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 legitimately curious i'm not trying to be nitpicky or whatever i'm right. I, you know i think i, I, I think I, you I, just macgyvered <laughs> i think you just macgyvered <laughs> communion bro i think you did it I, I i didn't know what to do and i think now i know um yeah. So I, one, I'm going to just throw this in there because uh, I, I don't have an answer for you. Uh, but what I, what I will say is one of the interesting things, if you read the history of this, the, the great schism between uh, the Church of the West and, and the Eastern Orthodox, so the, the Roman, Roman, Roman Catholic jurisdictions and Eastern Orthodox, when the Roman Catholics uh, sent their letter to excommunicate the Eastern Orthodox, they had, they had a couple of things that they were upset about. But a, an extra little jab that they threw in there was they were accusing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, no, it was in reverse. The Eastern Orthodox wrote a letter to the Roman Catholics to excommunicate them. And they had a couple of gripes with the, the, the Eastern Orthodox has some, certain gripes with the Roman Catholics that you, you know, the ones that you know of. But there was an extra little jab in there. And the extra jab was that the Eastern Orthodox church or churches were accusing the Roman Catholics of being Judaizers because they did not have uh, or, be, or because they used uh, unleavened bread. Because in the Eastern yeah. Orthodox, till today, they used unleavened bread in their communion, which might upset um, Matthew. I, I don't know what to make of it. 
Uh, but it just, I just thought it's an interesting, uh, an, an interesting little thing in, in, in history. Wait, the uh, Eastern Orthodox used leavened bread is what yes. you meant, right? Yeah, like yeah. if you see their communion, it's, right. it's, it is a, a big loaf of bread. And they, interestingly, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what value, value of it is, but they accused the Roman Catholics of being Judaizers for insisting <laughs> on having unleavened bread, which is just, I, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, I just find it funny. I have no idea. Joke's um, on them. That leaven came in with their icons. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's if, another if fun only fact. It was only the leaven. <laughs> here's another fun fact. When the Church of the East or the Assyrian, is that the Assyrian Orthodox? No, the, the Nestorian Church. Yeah. Um, eh, you historians yeah. here probably know that story better than I do, but uh, did not did they not escape with the uh, they they managed to get hold of the um, the sourdough starter for the like the like the the fountainhead of uh, the 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 starter that produced the official communion bread that it's supposed to supposedly had come down from the apostles, and so that's their claim to legitimacy to this day is that they have the official um yeast take that apostolic succession <laughs> there you go <laughs> that is so a, um the orthodox yeah. somebody, had to start over yeah well let me somebody let me get to your talk. question dave dave let me let me give you an uh, an answer what i i don't know the parameters uh, what i can say is that we had we had a controversy here at one point over over wine versus grape juice and it was a conscience matter for someone and so we were trying to reconcile how to deal with it Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that probably 90% of the Eucharistic celebrations that you'll find in Boston are alcoholic wine, but it happens from time to time that it's grape juice. Mm -hmm. The reason I, uh, the reason I personally relented, cause that's a kind of a, a, a hobby horse of mine, the, the, the inebriating cup of the Lord, um, is that what Jesus does in, in the, the Lord's Supper is that he does not use the word that we would expect when he talks about the cup. He, he uses the, word, the expression fruit of the vine instead of oinos, which would be wine. And so the fact that he uses fruit of the vine in the administration of the original Lord's Supper now, I, I think that there's a reason that he does that. My, my speculation about why he uses that terminology is because I think that Jesus is actually making a Nazarite vow at the Last Supper. He's saying, I won't partake of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom. And I think he's making a Nazarite vow to his church until the consummation of the second advent. But that's a lot of speculation on my part. The fact is, he calls the cup the fruit of the vine. And so... I, I, I have enough room in those parameters to say, as long as it's fruit of the vine, we can use it in a Eucharistic celebration. Now, I don't think that we can use apple juice or cough syrup or anything else. I, I, I just, I think we need to, f I, I'm, I'm enough of a traditionalist. I think we need something from, from grapes. So Angry Orchard is out, David. Mm. <laughs> so I, I, as... As long as that now, what if somebody was shipwrecked in a desert island and all they had was coconuts? Uh, I'll trust that to God and them. Uh, I, I think it's a I, rare enough I circumstance. Figured, we'll yes. leave it there. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I. Yeah. I, just, I, I. I do like the. I do like having wine for communion because uh, particularly like bitter, like right. Uh, you know, bitter wine because you you have it just like. I remember. 
we started having communion with friends of ours and they grew up, they, they were part of the same churches that we came from. And we always had grape juice wine in, 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 those, in that church that we came out of. So when we started having wine, I started bringing certain, certain wines and, and one of them was kind of bitter and they're like, oh man, it's bitter. And it's just like, but there was a sense of, con- I felt like connection with Jesus. Like this, right. his cup was bitter right. and this cup is bitter. And it, and it, man, it just, it's just an intimate, it's an intimacy thing, I think, but there's, yeah. there's something, I think something special about that. Um, um, can, can, I need to get off here pretty soon. I don't care if you guys go on without me, but I, I, there was one interesting thing while we're on the subject of the Eucharist that I, I found out recently that uh, John and Charles Wesley um, believed in the real presence, um, which was, you know, not, not, I, I think in the background or in the, in the circles they were moving in was a, they had to do some defense of that, but they wrote a, a, uh, they wrote an ent- entire hymn book, mostly, I think Charles Wesley is believed to be the author of most of the hymns, although they're not all attributed in the hymn book of Eucharist hymns. And, um, and I think there, there's a, there's a hymn of, of Wesley's that's still sung in Methodist circles, I believe, um, that I just think sums up the mystery so well. Um, once we've talked about all the different things we think it could mean, um, what it, Charles Wesley sums up in, in this hymn, just the, the reality that when we get to the end of all the talking and, and conjecturing and trying to understand, we're still left with a mystery that, that, uh, that is intended to, to, to evoke wonder and awe and you know mm-hmm. astonishment and praise in us that, that God would allow us to partake in something this this amazing and, and, and such cosmic um, importance. And if I could, I'll just read it. It won't, it's it's not a long song, it's got four stanzas. Um, oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Who shall say how bread and wine God into us conveys? How the, how the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits his blood, fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Let the wisest mortals show how we the grace receive. Feeble elements bestow a power not theirs to give. Who explains the wondrous way how through these the virtue came? These the virtue did convey, yet still remain the same. How can spirits heavenward rise by earthly matter fed? Drink herewith divine supplies and eat immortal bread. Ask the Father's wisdom how, Christ, who did the means ordain. Angels round our altars bow to search it out in vain. Sure and real is the grace, the manner be unknown. Only meet us in thy ways and perfect us in one. Let us taste the heavenly powers. Lord, we ask for nothing more. Thine to bless, tis only ours to wonder and adore. It's really good. It's beautiful. Uh, can you, if you could send that to, to, to me, that'd be great. Yeah, if you yeah. just maybe drop it in the comments for everybody. So I'll they can drop it, it in the comments, yeah. No, just send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, somebody asked a question. Um, what do you do with a fairly early practice of having the elders be the overseers of communion, pre-Constantine, but after the church grew larger? I can't give specific references in the top of my head, but I remember having read several examples in the patient ferment of the early church. It's Irenaeus, especially. He says you can't 
consecrate without the bishop present. Okay. So what, what, what I'll tell you what I do with that. I think that there are two administrations of post-apostolic church hierarchy and structure. I think that there's an Irenaean and there's a Justinian model of church administration. And that one of them is very hierarchical and one of them is much more um, egalitarian. And, and Irenaeus certainly takes the hierarchical approach to church administration. And maybe there were good reasons for him too. I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, but I, 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 th I think that those are, those are prescriptions for her, how Irenaeus thinks the church should run and, and the kind of structure. What's interesting to me is that there's some there's some reasons to be suspicious of Irenaeus's model of, of of authority. We're totally diverging from the subject here, but it, it is a, a a famous case that's cited about the consecration of the host. There's there's two major touch points that would would lead me otherwise. One is that in Paul's epistles, when he appeals to the churches, he's appealing broadly to the people. Um, so when he writes First Corinthians in particular, the 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 discourse on discipline of of the brother that was in sin is all the appeal is to the people. That same convention is followed in First Clement when Clement writes to the Corinthian church. Again, those Corinthians are pesky people, I guess. Um, when he writes to them, the appeal about how to deal with the church issues was again to the people. And I think that, that that tends to fall in line with this um, Justinian, more egalitarian view of, of church polity. And the Irenaean model wins in Rome, especially, and then ascends all over all the churches and the Roman see becomes over everybody. So, we, so I think it's certainly safe to say that the Irenaean model left unchecked goes in very, very bad places. Uh, how utilitarian it is in any given place may, may, may be a function of, of what's happening in that church and among those people and w why it should be that way. What I, what I would say is uh, Irenaeus has a, uh, all right, so there's a couple of things I want to say. The first thing, now that we're on the topic of Irenaeus, Irenaeus, I just finished reading it against Heresy's book three. He says, he, he goes, the Holy Spirit is wherever the church is and the church is wherever the Holy Spirit is. And so... Um, you know, I, I think you can stick with with Irenaeus. Maybe not so hard, not so not not the hard line. You know, you got to be with the bishop aspect of it, but that the church is going to be where the Holy Spirit is at. I mean, even he would concede to that. Mm -hmm. And and so, I mean, we can look at the we can test test the person to see. You know, um, you know, shout out to Jim. Uh, we can test someone and see <laughs> are they producing the fruits of the spirit. And if someone is, you know. Um, you know, doing things uh, that we know bishops were doing. There's a certain argument to be made. I don't know if the Holy Spirit is, is here, and and that can get maybe too loose. That can get that can get maybe chaotic, but it has gotten chaotic. Like I don't know what else. I mean, that's just what that's just what what has happened. I think you know, I, and I, maybe that's not a very a very clean answer. But uh, the the other thing I would say is um, that there. I think Irenaeus and more. I haven't really seen it in Irenaeus. I've only read his first three books on against heresies i haven't really seen him be very dogmatic about the eucharist or anything like that that was i've seen it more in ignatius's epistles he is pretty hardcore on that but mm -hmm. in, in each one of those epistles where he's like don't have don't gather with anyone that's not that's you're not right I, I should have said ignatius not irenaeus oh okay okay all right yeah uh, all right. Ignatian. So 
Ignatius. Uh, Ignatius and all you, you read all his epistles only in the ones and all he's in all of them except for one epistle he wrote epistles to a couple of churches the one to rome he doesn't tell them oh you know make sure you don't have communion except unless when you're with, with your when you're with the bishop to all the other ones he does tell them to make sure that you are that you are you know falling within the hierarchical structure don't don't be gathering with people outside of this hierarchy right but in each one of those same epistles, go back and read them. He actually himself met the bishop and he says, I met your bishop. He's an amazing guy. He, and, and in one case, he goes, this guy, he's so meek. He, and he, he says something to the effect, like I should learn meekness from him. And so there's a certain, there's a certain case to be made that the context, it made sense why Ignatius was saying that it was a very dangerous time. The apostles are, 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 are all dead and they're on their own. And uh, I mean, it, uh, he may have been supporting bishops who wouldn't have said those things themselves. Uh, possibly, uh, I think po that that I mean, that, I think that's that's uh, that's definitely a possible idea. I think there's also the sense of like it was a dangerous time. Right. There was a lot of false teachers out there right. uh, that were, that, were, that were not clinging to the faith to, to to the tradition of the of the ancient church. You know what I mean? At this time, the only people clinging to the tradition of the ancient church were people like Ignatius and the, and these bishops that he knew personally. So I think that there's an argument to be made that the context of it, it, it was good advice for that time. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just does, it just, it didn't scale up through right. time. Right. It just, it just didn't scale up through time. And I don't, I don't, I think if you would have told Ignatius, Ignatius, there's going to be a time where you're going to have the, the head bishop of Rome is going to be, I mean, doing all sorts of wicked, crazy things. He would, you know, yeah. if, if, if he understood that scenario, I'm pretty sure his advice would be different, but I that's agree. just not the time frame that he lived in. So that'd be that. That would be my, my thoughts. Well, it's uh, we're we're at an hour and forty. I want to wrap it up. Uh, I appreciate all you guys' thoughts. I'm sure this has been uh, given everybody some stuff to think about. I want to close on a little bit of a lighter note. I uh, we we need to make sure and say hi to Jim. Uh, David already hi, mentioned Jim. him, but welcome to the podcast, Jim. This one will really rock your socks. Um. <laughs> I, I wrote a letter to Jim. For those of you who don't know, we're talking about Jim at Don't Perish. Uh, I, I wrote an email to Jim. I, I just asked him what I told him was, look, you can criticize us all you want. Please do. It's perfectly legitimate. Uh, I don't have any problems with that. But don't post pictures of my family. And he didn't take it well. He actually posted a picture of him again. So uh, if you think that's not nice and you're out there, send Jim an uh, email and let him know you think that's not nice. And we'll see if we can get him to be a little more kind. I, I don't care. It was a public picture. I just don't like the idea of people with those kinds of access to grind putting pictures of my family up. Yeah, that's, that's odd. It's a little weird. Uh, yeah. So anyhow, uh, I just wanted to, I think we'll, we'll have to say hello to him every week because we know he watches. So I uh, wanted to make sure and get that greeting out there. Um, yeah, I don't know if we have that, that? Uh, need his, his email address is don't perish at outlook.com. So there you go. There you go. That way you don't have to go look it up. You can just type it in <laughs> right there and um, carry on. I'm kind of surprised that it's not a at hotmail.com <laughs> <laughs> or AOL. Yeah, um, I don't think we have anything planned for next week. So you know how we roll. We'll figure it out. I'm guessing at 745 next Monday. So I'll see you guys there.
All right. Thanks for your time, David. It was a blessing having you with us, brother. Yeah, it's great to meet you virtually. Uh, who's who's all the? It's always great to meet all these people whose whose faces I've not seen in the flesh, as Paul said. But hopefully one day, um, yeah, I enjoyed uh, getting to know you a little bit. Likewise, it was a pleasure. You guys have a great night. All right, peace to you all. Good night. God bless. Peace.